his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, from whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, knew long, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the, about under the sun, along with that youth who was, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for having your word in our language. Thank you that you are a God who grants not just general revelation of creation that testifies to you, but, Father, very specific revelation that you don't leave us in the dark about what matters most uh, to you, especially who you are and what you've done for us. Mm -hmm. And so, Father, I pray now that uh, you would continue to send out laborers who would translate your word into all languages, that all might know you rightly and worship you rightly. And as we have it here, Father, I pray that we would not take it for granted, that we would not be desensitized to the wonderful gift it is to have your word. And as we prayed earlier, now, Father, would you incline our hearts to you, that we would want to hear your word, and not just want to hear your word, but want to do what your word says. And thank you that you grant every grace we need to do so. We pray, Father, for your provision now, that your spirit would use your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. If you're first time with us, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've made it to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And our pattern is to, to walk through Bible books and to switch Old Testament, New Testament, and genres so that we can aim at the whole counsel of the Lord. Which, which books do we not need? Which books are not beneficial? As Second Timothy says, it's all breathed out and it's profitable. Uh, from the Lord and so we've been studying Ecclesiastes and basically what we have seen so far in Ecclesiastes is everything without Jesus is meaningless uh, I was laughing with uh, Keith Kent and Mr. Jim at the cookout that we did Wednesday night uh, Keith was asking when we might do a study through the Psalms and I said well we may do that maybe next summer because Psalms are a good study that one doesn't build on the other you can as folks are in and out in the summer, and so happy to see so many of you in and fanning, because it's obviously hot. We're all in here together, been praising so hard, right? You worked up a sweat, and so grateful that you're here in the wonderful AC building. And, uh, and so as folks are in or out, you don't, they don't build off of each other. And I said, well, Ecclesiastes is kind of like that too, because basically whatever was in the chapter you missed, it was meaningless too, right? That's all you, that's all you have to know. So 
you know, go back and see what the topic was. And you're like, yep, without Jesus, it's meaningless. So far, we've, we've seen pleasure and wisdom and work, which all three of these are not necessarily bad. They can be very good. But without Christ, that there's no lasting gain or ultimate satisfaction that comes from them, that he is the only means to both of those. Uh, last week, Matthew uh, preached for us Ecclesiastes 3.16 through 4.3. When I was with you two weeks ago, we encountered the first verses in Ecclesiastes 3, which are most often read at funerals from Ecclesiastes. As we pick up in Ecclesiastes 4, we get the ones that are most often read at weddings, right? So we're going to have all the big events in your life covered in these two chapters and at least popular scriptures. But what's in Ecclesiastes 4? How many of you have ever seen someone do the little cord of three strands in a wedding service, right? Uh, I saw one, I was pretty sure that the future mother-in-law was going to be involved with it too, you know, and I was like, well, that's a true picture too, you know, they all come with it, and so uh, I do walk through that in, in premarital counseling to make sure they know those people that they see at that house, they come for the holidays too, you know, it's a package deal, so... Uh, it is not just for a, a marital couple, though. It's not just for a man and wife. There are blessings as these unite together, particularly for a faith family, and it, it's for the kingdom. And so we'll jump in and we'll see some of these. Solomon, or the preacher, is actually doing some people watching. Have you ever sat in the food court at the mall and just watched people? I've, I've had the privilege all my life to be around women and uh, to have women whose spiritual gift is shopping. And so often with my mom and sister when I was a little boy or now with Tara and, and Arabella has developed a passion, uh, I get opportunities to sit on benches and malls all the time, right? And you just watch people, right? And how many of you have ever judged people, not just made observations? Where are you judgers? We know you judgy judgers, right? And we're like, oh, look at that pretzel, right? going to drop it. We, we see people, we're like, yeah, we, we go beyond just observations sometimes. Solomon, or the preacher, is making observations. Let me show you. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. He says the word, again, I saw. He sees something. You're going to see that in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then I saw. And then verse 7. Again, I saw. In verse 15, I saw. And even back in the text that Matthew preached, chapter 3, verse 16, moreover, I, guess what he says? Saul. Good. You got it. So he's making some observations. He's looking at different situations. Last week, we talked about oppression and the need for justice. And he sees the oppressed. In our text today, he's going to see the envious and the slothful. He's going to see a king who's no longer teachable. And then he's going to see the benefit when folks come together and, and safety in numbers and things that, that work out. And in each of these two, he's not just noticing, but he's making some calls, some, some judgments of what's better in these situations. So look again in your text. For instance, in chapter 4, verse 3, a verse you covered last week, that better than both is he that's not yet been born, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In chapter 6, I mean, in verse 6 of chapter 4, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. In verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And then in verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So in, in our text that we get to walk through today, he's going to make some observations and then he's going to tell you what's better in each of those cases, as we just read. And we're going to give some thought to that. 
bottom line is we, we need companions who help us remain coachable and aim for contentment. If you want to do some alliteration on it there. In the middle, we, we need others and we need them to help us be willing to aim for contentment, but also remind us when we're no longer coachable or teachable that we need to keep learning. I've put the passage in the sentence just at the top of your notes. And how many of you, when you saw the staple, you had sheer panic when you walked in today? I love it. I love when we can have a third page in the staple just to see panic sweep over the room. But uh, the passage in the sentence is simply this. We are better together and best with Christ. That's what we're going to get to with the preacher, that we are better together, that we benefit from having each other in each other's lives. When God reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles us to other believers. And a faith family is not optional. We are called to be involved in each other's lives in some ways. Some, you know, It's very easy to practice the fruit of the Spirit with yourself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm so patient with myself. So kind to myself. But the fruit of the Spirit was never meant to be exhibited to yourself. It was meant to be demonstrated as sinners bounce off of each other in life and in home and in community and work. And so we're called to see here the benefit of being together. And then when we together are with Christ, it's best. And so as we jump in, here's truth number one in the, the beginning of the verses. When God is not all we want, we need others who remind us he's all we need. So when God is not all we want, we need others who remind us he's all we need. Here's what he says in verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So in each of these, he's going he's gonna to show us the imbalance, and then he's going to show us the better, as we've seen, right? And as he begins with the imbalance, he takes on two of what many would call the seven deadly sins. You may know them as that. I enjoyed desiring God put out a book called Killjoys. Then it's not just that these are deadly sins, but these are sins in particular that kill joy in our life. That's what sin does. It kills joy in our journey. And two in particular that he sees here are envy and sloth. Envy and sloth and what envy is driving them. And so we have an opportunity this morning to consider these. I've put another teaching point there for you that all ambition and acquisition that is driven by envy is meaningless. Because he's going to say this too is vanity. This too is vanity. And so whatever it is that he's teaching or aiming for, it's the reminder that it's meaningless. And so... All ambition and acquisition that's driven by envy is meaningless. In the 16th century, Edmund Spencer was a poet, and I'm sure you just read his works every night before you go to bed, but he describes envy with a character, and here's the picture that he gives of that character envy in, his, in, his, in one of his works. Envy is depicted as a man with cankered teeth chewing on a venomous toad with poison running down his jaws. Some of you have seen these guys at family reunions, right? He wears a many-colored robe, rides upon a ravenous wolf, and hides a deadly snake close to his chest. Inwardly, he devours himself, weeping over the wealth of others and rejoicing in their misfortune. Envy grieves at the happiness of others and spews spiteful poison and abuse on those who practice faithful Christian obedience. That's a good description that he gives, right? I've put some definitions in your notes as well from Joe Rigney. Envy cries over others' wealth. Envy cheers when another stumbles. Envy weeps at those who rejoice and rejoices over those who weep. Envy, as Solomon says, makes the bones rot. It's no trifle but a powerful force that can knock us off our feet. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before envy? 
Webster, when he was putting together his dictionary, just said, it's the painful and often resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. That's what envy is. It's this painful awareness that someone has received a blessing you have not received, and you are really, there's something inside that's, that's craving that. The flesh is producing a feeling. The difference then between coveting and envy is coveting is you want what the other person has. Envy is you're angry they have it, all right? Uh, coveting is toward their possessions, and envy is toward their person. You, you hate them. You're angry at them that they get this that you want. In your notes, I think I put Hedges says, envy involves comparison, criticizing, complaining, ingratitude, and hatred. Man, aren't you glad that Ecclesiastes is not relevant at all to our life? Or I like, as Pastor Mitchell said, Ecclesiastes. That's, that's our down low version of this book, right? <laughs> Ecclesiastes is now super relevant, right? Because I'm sure none of us ever do comparison, right, with others or criticize or complain or... I'm certain that we never have ingratitude, right? I'm sure that when we pray together for our offering as we do each week, we just continue that all week long, right? You don't save it up till Sunday to thank God, right, for his provision. We would never be guilty of ingratitude. But the truth is, when I also put there, we often want what God has given to others more than we want what God has given to us. That's part of our problem, right? And uh, Gibson says that any friend can be there really for to share sorrows and failures, but it takes a special friend who will share the joys without being jealous and envious, patting you on the back, but not really celebrating with you, instead wishing it was them. He goes on to say that there's some patterns with envy in our life. First of all, that envy follows success like night follows day. So when someone else has success, when someone else is picked for that team as, as children, uh, you see it among children, right? I've seen it coaching six-year-olds in baseball. Everybody wants to be the pitcher. Everybody wants to be. I've had six-year-olds cry on the field and parents crying off the field over positions of six-year-olds, right? Because we're winning the World Series out there. And so envy follows success when someone gets something else, right? Or Second, envy operates close to home. It attacks our closest relationships first. What we mean by that is it makes our fellowship thorny, difficult, and sometimes even impossible. We tend to envy those who are close at hand, who are like us, who care about the same things that we do. Ministry speaking, there aren't a lot of guys. Uh, Rigney would contend that, that we, we, I don't envy John Piper. I don't envy Tim Keller. We may be more inclined to envy local pastors who God is moving in their midst more than moving in our midst, right? And so, but tends to attack these closest to us. How many of you have ever, for those of you who've been blessed to have multiple children, you had one child who was playing something and the other child didn't want it till they saw that child had it, right? And it was not really about the toy at all, really. It's about that person. And that doesn't change. You have teenagers who uh, this person wants this and they don't want it until they realize this other person has it. And it's not really about the thing. Or two men want the same job and this guy didn't want it until this guy got that job. Now all of a sudden he wants that job sort of thing. And you see it throughout our life. A couple questions for you. I put it there. Here's how you can test for envy in your life. How do you respond to the blessing and success of others? Do you murmur and gossip about it or do you celebrate with them? Are you filled with gratitude or carping rivalry? When it comes to the success and fruitfulness of others, are you their biggest fan or their biggest critic? So for instance, singles, singles. when your single friends move to be engaged or married friends or, or 
or even having a girlfriend or boyfriend, are you genuinely happy for them? Are you filled with gratitude that God has brought them such a wonderful blessing? Are you upset that you've been passed over once again, it seems, right? Uh, For students, teenagers, how do you respond when your friends and siblings are blessed by God? When you make the team or when they make the team or get an award and have lots of friends, are you happy for them? Do you communicate that to them, how excited and proud you are when they're blessed by God? Or do you look at them with resentment and displeasure? What about moms? When someone else's child walks before your child or when someone else's child gets something that you feel like your child should have, uh, they're murmuring behind their backs. Or what about for men when someone else gets that promotion or gets that new toy or gets to do something with their family? Or what if, what if when you're Saul and David and Jonathan, what about if you were a general in Saul's army and all of a sudden this young shepherd boy is made leader? You want to submit to his authority? Uh, this guy who was out with the sheep? And so just ways that we can test and see, is there envy in our life? Uh, The issue is when my ambitions and acquisitions are more important than our advancement. And that's what he's getting out here. This, this, it's work that's driven by what I want, not what's best for us. There's no R in it. It's me and what drives me. And in doing so, we often take advantage of others. If we want to get ahead of others, though, we're not serving them very well. And we're certainly not demonstrating love for them as for ourselves. Uh, I prayed for Matt and for Rob and for Chris. This week we had lunch together at Steele's Diner. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that God has brought these three other men who we prayed for for years. God's brought them into our midst. And we were able to just share ministry things. And I'm happy that I'm sort of on the other end of some of these things. And I get to celebrate many joys. Uh, They're walking through the throes of some things at times in their first years of pastoring. And the cool thing about that group is that burdens are divided and joys are multiplied. And so even as one says, hey, man, we, we, were, we were able to see this many people, then we can honestly rejoice in that and not be jealous. We are grateful that God's moving. That's what we've been asking. And that's what it means to be kingdom, not territory. When we pray and ask God to move in these sister churches, even if he chooses not to move numerically in our midst in a way, if he chooses there, we want to rejoice for the kingdom. And that's how you can know that you're free from envy. Fortunately, God's given us three enemies of envy. The cross of Christ, in which all of our envy should be crushed. And the good news is, it's all paid for. It's all covered and atoned. The grace of God, in which we learn from Titus 2, is our means of renouncing worldliness and ungodliness. The grace that we need to walk and navigate relationships and life. And then lastly, here's one of the biggest enemies to envy. Just gratitude for what God's given you. Gratitude for the blessings. Gratitude above all for his presence. Hedges says the most effective medicine for envy is the pure spiritual milk of God's goodness. Gratitude is the posture of the soul that receives his goodness. And gratitude is fundamentally incompatible with envy. But not just stopping there. You'll know that that grace is at work when you truly thank God for the blessings he gives others. So not just thanking him for you, but when you're moved to not be envious of what the others do, but thanking God for his work in their lives. And so we're able to say, above all, I have Christ. Is there any greater treasure than Christ? Christ is not a means to other ends of stuff. Christ is the treasure, right? And so when I want more things, 
we need each other to remind each other we have all we need in Christ, right? The other end of that then, instead of this guy who envies just driving him to work, and, and you'll get the picture there in verse 6 of two hands full of striving and striving after the wind. Let me know how that goes, if you can catch the wind. I watched a guy, there's, there's these things that you can kind of sit in. You, you catch them with the wind, you do this maneuver to catch for the end, and it forms this little chair you can sit in. It was fun watching him trying to catch the wind. I literally thought about Ecclesiastes, and it was very futile in his attempts. It was awesome. He kept failing, and I kept watching. So, uh, on the other end is sloth, and in your outline there, I put there for you, all sloth is selfishness and is meaningless. We tend to be people who, who are extreme, aren't we? We will say one day, I will always do this, and then we go to the other and say, I'm never doing that, right? We, we tend not to stay in the middle. We'll, we'll go opposite. So he sees one who envies driving him. And now in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, either way, that the question is, so is this a guy who used to be very passionate about work? Or maybe he was never passionate about work. Bottom line is he has nothing and he's resolved to self-cannibalism because he's not worked and there's nothing in his pantry and either way sloth is never an answer to anything i think i may have put there in your notes gibson says that laziness is a way of hating your neighbors because you have nothing to give them laziness is a way of hating them because you have nothing to give newhouse defines modern sloth as evenings without number obliterated by television evenings neither of entertainment nor of education but of narcotized defense against time and duty it's apathy, the refusal to engage the pathos of other lives and of God's life with them. When you, where you choose Netflix instead of your responsibilities, where you choose whatever you're, you're doing instead of engaging with your family or the needs of others that, that arise. Um, when uh, the Boldazars, when Wilkes had seizures, Tara and I had not seen each other for nine days, and right as that she was getting in from Memphis is when Wilkes was taken to the the ER and uh, and so there was a moment of greeting and then there was a moment of going to, to be with them to pray with them and to, to comfort them sloth however puts your own agenda above the needs of any others puts your own comfort above the needs of others and as Reinke says there's sloth the slothful desperately attempt to control his life in order to preserve comforts dreading being interrupted by the needs of others but he cannot respond to God's redirection. Life becomes self-centered and utilitarian. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes and says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not, what, church? Do you know what this is? I heard this shared at a funeral, actually, here in town. A friend of mine, his grandmother's funeral, she would tell her grandchildren all the time, He that won't work, won't eat. Even at grandma's house. I was like, that's a tough grandma. Ooh, uh, you had to earn those biscuits, right? And so... They all talked about how she would share this verse. And Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now search persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. How many of you love having the responsibility to confront someone about sin that you see in their life? Don't you just love it? It's a joy, right? You wake up and you're like, awesome. Every day is awesome, right? None of us love to confront, but here's... Even this issue of slothfulness, Paul's writing to the church of Thessalonians to say, just as we cannot ignore envy in each other's life, neither should we ignore sloth. And that we're called to walk alongside each other. In 1 Thessalonians, 
Paul says that each should work with their hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Bottom line is God cares how we work. Work is not a punishment from the fall. It's just been made more difficult. Work was meant to be good and ultimately not as just a provision for our comfort, but to be able to meet the needs of others, to be a part of giving for the expanse of the kingdom. When all we want is ease or comfort, we need others who remind us to look at the cross because what was easy or comfortable about the cross? When I'm choosing my comfort over your concerns, I need you to come alongside and remind me of our commitments to each other. That's what sloth is. My comfort is more important than our concerns. Just as with envy, my ambition is is more important than our advancement in the gospel, right? And so... Sometimes with the softball, though, we have times in our life, we just want to quit. We want to check out. We want to, we want to just not do anything. And in those times, we need each other to help each other keep running, to remind each other that work is not necessarily bad, even though it's difficult. The bottom line is not working at all is not an antidote to anything. So he comes to verse 6, and he just says this. After assessing envy and assessing slothfulness, He says in verse 6, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So he says it's better to to have this one hand uh, that's full of what you need and this other hand open. And obviously work, one's work, one's one's quietness versus the guy that's just trying to grasp. Uh, He's talking about contending for contentment. And there's something to be said for not entering this rat race, or as one of the other commentators said, living our life less upwardly mobile, is that we, we understand there's something for, about peace and quietness, and not a striving after something that we may never obtain. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, and, and we're not going to camp on contentment long, because in the next chapter, we're going to have an opportunity to reconsider this, and that's where I want to go further into it. But simply, 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment's great gain. And then Paul says in Philippians 3 that he had learned the secret of something. Does anyone know what he says in Philippians 3? I've learned the secret of what? Contentment, right? So he learned a secret of contentment, and that's us coming along. I I put a question there for you from Gibson. Why not stop and enjoy today in very real ways? This is what we don't often do. We don't often do. Our problem is we think about what's coming next, what's coming tomorrow. Gibson will go on to say tomorrow's promotion, it just brings more pressure. The higher degree will just teach you how little you know. The marriage will connect you to another sinner for life. The deadline will pass only for another to come racing toward you. Stop chasing the wind. Stop thinking the future will be better and easier. Stop thinking if only things were different, you'd be a better person and that one day you'll be a better parent. And You don't know the future, what lies around the corner, whether good or ill. Perhaps these are the very best days of your life even now. So he goes on, and I put the rest of it, therefore you live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you will have, but which you actually cannot control at all. You can't control at all. Be grateful for God's graces in each day. Don't be striving after the wind. We'll, we'll see in a, in a week or so of many who've worn themselves out just trying to get rich and the pains that come from that. So he observes, he says, I've seen the guy that's motivated by envy, He's frustrated that these other people are blessed. And I hope that's not you. I hope, I hope in our midst, we're not upset when God blesses another family in a way we wish he blessed ours. If so, that, we need to repent of that this morning and ask for the grace to truly be able to celebrate God's joys in each other's lives. And I hope there's no slothfulness. I hope there's no way you're putting 
your own comfort above the concerns of your family. I hope your own comfort and, and selfishness is not above service for your faith family. And ways so are. If so, we need to repent of these things. Which gets us to, to truth number two, big truth number two, is when we're tempted to go it alone, we need others who refuse to abandon us. When we're tempted to go it alone, we need others who refuse to abandon us. So he's looking again, look in verse 7, he says, Again I saw vanity under the sun. So he sees something else that's meaningless. He says, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. So there's no one else he's providing for. He's not thinking about, well, I got to get the kids college paid for. Well, there'll be a wedding someday. I got to save for that. They're going to need a car and insurance. You know, this brother is just him. There's no one else, but there's no end to his toil. He's, he's still striving, right? His eyes are never satisfied with what he has. And in doing that, he doesn't even take time. He says, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This guy's working so hard and not even asking himself, why am I doing this? Why am I knocking myself out? He needs someone who would hold up the mirror of the word to his life and say, hey, bro, this is you. This is you. And what are you doing it for? Because the preacher says it's all meaningless. He starts right there. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity. And as I've put in your notes, striving in success without having others to share in it, it's meaningless. Striving in success without having others to share in it. And the problem isn't just independence, it's, it's isolation. When we go it alone, I, I got this, I don't need anybody. These are the people who often you'll, you'll see who either are immature or disobedient about the church. There'll be those who say, I'm cool with Jesus, I'm not cool with the church. Or I'm good with Jesus, I don't need the church. They therefore either don't understand that Christ is building his church, that, that Christ gave his blood to purchase the church, that the Spirit is powering the church. There's this idea of, hey, I got it on my own, but you were never called to get it on your own. You were never called to be by yourself. Sanctification is a partnership, not only with us and God, but with other believers. They were intended to be reconciled together. Gibson says his only companions, this guy in this text, are work and wealth, and he possesses everything except joy. Matt Chandler, when he preached through Ecclesiastes, he said he's never had a young lady come in his office who hated her father because he drove an old Ford pickup and dropped her off at school. Never had a daughter who's come in his office and hated her dad because he didn't buy her the pony or wouldn't let her go on the school ski trip. He said he has had some women, though, who've come into his office whose dad had the most expensive vehicle and could have paid for everyone to go on the ski trip. But the daughter never knew her worth because everything else seemed more important to him. And he said, I've never had a daughter complain of a dad who, who, when he wasn't striving after the wind, she didn't hate her dad because he wasn't doing that. But he understood what was important and valuable. These are important days with our families. These are important days that aren't repeated. And so the need the need to seize what really is valuable and to know that this guy who's by himself he needed someone to speak into his life so this is where he says in verse 9 two are better than one he just says it and now he's going to give you some reasons why because they have a good reward for their toil for they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so he says, the bottom line is two are better than one in coming together. And obviously from the, 
the image of work or reward or productivity and even profitability. How many of you have ever found that many hands make quick work, right? You ever been trying to do something? I love when we go on mission trips and all of us work on something and it's amazing how quickly things get done. When we went to Baton Rouge afterward to help in the homes of the flood, it was amazing with that team how quickly things could be done versus that we were in the home, especially of one widow Versus that one widow trying to do that work. But when we came in and were hands and energy to do that, the benefit that comes along from that. People often ask, why are we still Southern Baptists? Because in many ways, uh, some of us consider, are considered the black sheep in Southern Baptistism. Well, why are we still Southern Baptists? And I would say to you two main reasons. The IMB and theological education. Because we can do more together in educating pastors, missionaries, church planters, youth ministers. We can do more together in theological education and we can send more missionaries through the IMB together than any of us could alone. And so there's the benefit of cooperating together. The reality is Trace Crossing can do more together for the gospel advancing in Tupelo than any one of our one families could do by itself. And so he says, look, there's the benefit of coming together and work and reward. How many of you have found in times of trouble it's good to have a friend? It's good to have a friend. I've shared with you before, when my dad died, I'll, I'll never forget the friend who showed up at my door with his bag packed, ready to go with me back home, to drive through the night and be with me every step of the way. Never forget that. He says, if one falls and there's no one to pick him up, man. But we all have trouble. Alicia read from us from Matthew 7. The, the rain comes down and the flood comes up in all of our homes and the benefit of having it. Sometimes we do get knocked down physically. Sometimes we have illnesses and we need help. But sometimes we get knocked down from life, don't we? Sometimes we get knocked down from our own pursuit of sin and we need someone to remind us of the gospel of Jesus. We need someone to remind us, get up and keep running. It's been covered and we're here together. That's why in Galatians 6, one of the things that I continually try to remind you, I hope when there's sin in our midst that we run to each other and not away. That we run offering restoration, not condemnation. That we... We seek to see repentance and then right reconciliation with the Lord and with the faith family, not by ignoring sin. But we don't run away because who of us walked in these doors today without sin or struggles? We need each other for times of trouble and, and fall. And if we're alone, we may just stay down. We might be like the lady who says, help, I've fallen and I can't get up, right? And so he says the benefit of two is... There's another to help lift. And we do that in each other's lives in different seasons. And then warmth and support. Uh, to lie down together. And this isn't just a picture of a married couple. And in our world where everything seems to be uh, grandized towards sin, I think about walking down the mountain with two Congolese pastors in Rwanda and them holding my hands. And there was nothing intimate, wrong-wise. There was nothing sexual about that. It was companions of coming together in the journey. When I read this passage, I thought of that great movie, Forrest Gump, right? Run, Forrest, run. But I thought about Forrest and Bubba, and I know it's been years. Some of you were not even born when that movie came out. But Forrest and Bubba are there at Vietnam, and, and Bubba says, Forrest, you lean up against me, and I'll lean up against you, and we can sleep here together, right? They're leaning back to back to be together. It's a picture here of just provision together. Uh, how many of you have ever found yourself in a time of spiritual desensitized, being desensitized or just cold toward Jesus? You ever found that? But maybe someone else who could come along and help bring the warmth of Christ again to your dreams. It's, it's not just 
physical warmth here. It's not just physical companionship. There's these other things too, spiritually, of having those who help come to us to warm our hearts once again for Christ. And then lastly, warfare, right? Suppose a man gets in a a fight and he's alone. He may prevail over one. My my Uncle Jim would tell me stories from World War II if I would sit and, and listen to them and if you're by yourself, think about uh, the Good Samaritan story. He was encountered by uh, robbers on his way, right? And he was overcome. So he says, look, one may be overcome, but when they're two, they're, they, may, they stand a better chance of withstanding. And so this idea of joining together for warfare and withstanding, that there's safety in numbers. Uh, I share an illustration. When I was a junior in high school, which was about 80,000 years ago, when I was a junior in high school, there was a guy who pursued my girlfriend at that time, which was a problem because she was my girlfriend, you know. But I, I decided to have a chat with him. My boy was working at Piggly Wiggly. And so I just went to his work and asked him for a few minutes to, to step outside for a conversation. I said, hey, man, what's up? You know, you know that we're dating. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, and I was just like, well, man, stop. You know, and, and it was nothing hostile. I was just trying to deal with the situation head on. And I didn't think anything about it. A couple days later, in Leesville, you do two things. You either watch the grass grow or you hang out at McDonald's. And so we were hanging out at McDonald's that night. And this bro had gone down the road. Pickering is an area just down the road from Leesville. And he'd gotten a little posse of boys. And he comes up to McDonald's where we're hanging out. And he decides to call me out at McDonald's. He wants us to handle it, you know, like men, fight. Because that's awesome. And so uh, he calls me out in front of everyone. And, and so then he goes outside and he's waiting. And as I open the doors and, and walk outside, this dude is just yelling his head off at me, right? And I don't really want to walk toward him. I'm a lover, not a fighter, you know? I don't really want to do this at all. But I'm a junior in high school without uh, wisdom. And so I'm walking toward this bro. In the next moment, while I'm still walking, this dude's yelling, one of my friends that I played football with just comes sprinting past me and he clocks this dude in his face and knocks him out with one punch. All the boys from Pickering left him, right? And I just kept walking and I knelt down and I said, did you need something? I don't even know if he heard it. Yeah, I don't even know. The people at McDonald's had already called the police because they have them on speed dial in Leesville. And so we heard the sirens and we all ran. I wish parents, and sorry students, I wish this was a great illustration of how I pursued peace and wisdom. It's not, but 24 years later, I still remember a friend who didn't abandon me in the fight, who actually did the fighting for me. And it's actually been a picture I've used for the gospel because no one has done more fighting for me than Christ in a battle I would have never won. I don't think I would have won that fight that night at McDonald's, to be honest. I don't think I would. And I know with sin and death and the flesh, I would never have won those. Christ has won those But I do know this, you and I actually face spiritual danger every day. The world is full of temptation and it doesn't take days off just because it's Sunday or Christmas or Easter. The desire of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Satan is always prowling around like a lion to devour us. When it comes to facing these spiritual dangers, two are better than one. I I know I've shared before, I don't see them this morning, they may be in the nursery, I I know they may be out of town. You know that Eric and I meet together and, and pray regularly. And, and what you may not always know is that when I travel and I preach, often before I make it back to the hotel, Eric is already sending me scripture. Eric is aiming me towards purity and conversations I will have with women who are not my spouse. 
Eric and I, when we meet that next week, we'll talk about what did you look at on the TV? Did you even turn the TV on? We have very specific questions. You know why? Because I need brothers in the fight. I need brothers in the battle. And this is what he says. Look, two are better than one and withstanding these things that will come against us that would prevail. I was able to take the boys to Jonathan Creek. And for those of you who, when we prayed together Wednesday, you know, it was the first time I took the boys to camp by themselves with me. Normally, we partner with an older sister so we can have some balance, right? But me and the boys headed off. And, and one of the things they got to do every day was uh, Jonathan Creek has these activities, lake activities, zip lines and the blob and all the things you could think of to climb on in the water, right? And uh, slides. But they had to do, they had, all had to have a buddy. They had to have a buddy. And so Adoniram and Alistair were buddies. One of them was more excited about that than the other, but they were, they were buddies, right? And in the middle of every lake activity period, they would all blow the whistles, the lifeguards were, and you had to find your buddy. You had to make sure where your buddy was. You had to be there with your buddy. There was, there was a buddy check. And so I pray that Ecclesiastes 4 would be a buddy check for us in a way. Some questions that I put there for you. Who are your partners in ministry that you do? Are, are you in relationships that are strong enough to help you grow in Christ? If you're married, are you spending time with your spouse in prayer? If you live with other Christians, are you speaking to one another about spiritual things? Do you belong to a small group Bible study? Is anyone holding you accountable in your most vulnerable areas of temptation? Does anyone in the world know you well enough to guard your back through prayer? We were never designed to live alone, but always with the help and support of our brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than assuming that you can manage your ministry or your sanctification on your own. Open your eyes to the spiritual partnership. It's where we choose service over, over selfishness, that we want to come along, and as we have opportunity, be friends and serve others. The preacher says, better are two than one. And then he comes to the last one in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. The last truth is that when we become certain of all things, we need others to remind us to receive counsel. We only stop taking advice if we think that we've got it all figured out. I have a friend of mine who often takes counsel within himself. Right? He'll step to the side and seek his own counsel from himself. Right, And so that means that he doesn't need it from anyone else. When we are experts on all things, we need others to remind us keep being educated and as the psalmist will say and Proverbs often say, it is only the fool that doesn't accept reproof. And then with regard to what happens with this young man and the king, it says in verse 14, he went from prison to the throne. So that's this rags to riches story, right? Though in his own kingdom he'd been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people. So it's this massive group that they're going to rule over, right? But it says, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after a win. So in one aspect, he sees the, the one king that won't be, is not teachable. And then just the other warning to all of us that fame that is both fleeting and fickle is meaningless. Right? Oliver Cromwell said the same uh, crowd that cheers you as you come into office would cheer you if you were being hung as well. And he says, so the fickleness of the crowd and the fleetingness, there's this guy that's going to have this incredible story of going from prison to the throne, but there'll be a generation that comes behind and they have no idea about him. They don't rejoice in him. And so the fleetingness of the things that are there, what's better is the welcoming of counsel and correction. And that's not easy. None of us really enjoy when others have to come to us and say, hey man, I've noticed these things. Just remember when they do, 
it probably is not easy for them. Although there does seem to be some people whose spiritual gifts is pointing out more sin in others' lives than their own. There's no doubt. That's not what this text is calling us to. Those who genuinely care about us, that we would welcome that. That we would welcome that. And the only way we arrive at that point is the grace of Christ to receive that. Which gets us to our last truth. We are better together, but we are best with Christ. And I've put the, the full notes there for you. Philip Ryken made some great truths here. But contentment and community are the antidotes for envy and isolation. And Christ is the answer to it all. We find the greatest reward when we work in partnership with him, relying on his grace to help us with every difficult task and asking for his blessing to take what we do in all its weakness and use it for his glory. When our hearts are cold, Jesus wraps us in the arms of his love to warm us up again. When we fall down, he picks us up, reminding us that our sins really are forgiven and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can help us stand. When we're in desperate danger, fighting against the very powers of hell, Jesus defends and rescues us, not just by his death, but also by the power of his eternal life. Jesus is the friend we need most of all. Two really are better than one when one of the two is the best one of all. And so the hope is you... you, you see at the end of verse 12 that a threefold cord is not quickly broken the idea there hey if two's great three's even better and as we consider our faith family the more that we have that will come along and contend together for the gospel it only adds strength but above all that it's meaningless if christ isn't the one who unites us and there's no closer friend no better ally than christ and certainly no one who has done more to protect us and in being the very substitute for us at the cross, absorbing the wrath of God so that we might have his righteousness laid upon us. The third sheet that I put in your notes are just the trace member commitments. Some of you, if you've not been 101 uh, through our membership class, you've not seen these, but this is what uh, you would find. Uh, I think that they're posted online as well. I'm not going to read through them now. I'm not going to take time to do that, but I wanted to intentionally put a copy in your hands in the hopes that you would, in the hopes that you would be reminded, we've never been called to be the people who just attend the same place and sit in the same room on Sunday mornings. We have call, been called to be the church. And those member commitments are pulled from scripture and our responsibilities to each other. If two are better than one, here are the things that we've committed to, to one another. And I want you to have these as a refresher of what we are called to be in each other's lives. As we move then to respond to this text and this sermon, Mitch will come and we're going to sing songs of truth as we always do. And I would just have a couple questions then in light of this text. Number one, are you truly celebrating God's blessings to others or are you full of envy this morning? Is there a need to repent of envy in your life of someone? Maybe someone in our midst, maybe someone not in our midst, maybe someone at your job, maybe a, a, a sibling or a family issue uh, that's gone on for years. Wherever there's envy, would you put it to death by the power of the Spirit today? Would you mortify that? Would you repent and seek the Lord's grace so that you could eventually even celebrate the good that's in, in this other's life? Are you slothfully pursuing your own comfort rather than helping with the concerns of others? Are there, are there areas where you're just saying, I don't want to be involved. Ugh. It would take effort. It would take energy. It would take sacrifice. Yeah, uh, it does. It does. Christ could have said that too. We have said often, God is sovereign by right, but he is savior by choice. And it took a lot of things that were not easy or comfortable. He could have sat back and not be involved and we would have all perished. And so if there's any way that you're putting your own comfort above the concerns of others in your family, 
in your neighborhood, at your job, in our faith family, would you repent of that and seek the grace to, to care? Ask the Lord to produce care and compassion in your own heart. Are you closed off to counsel and correction from others? You don't need anything from us. You don't need to hear what we need to say. Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. We're called to do this. Hebrews 3, remind each other deceit of sin's deceitfulness. So remind each other each day choosing Christ. Consider how to stir one another on to love and good works. But if we're not open to reproof and rebuke, we are the fool. Especially when it's from people who love us. And they're not coming with their agenda. They're coming with the word of God. If we're not open to that, let us repent. Is there any way that we're pursuing positions of authority that are fickle and fleeting and we're missing what's most important all around us? If so, we need to repent. And then lastly, are we loving others as we love ourselves and our family and our faith family? And if we're not, we want to repent. Two are better than one. There's such a gift. When, when God gives us his spirit and his word, these are two great gifts. And then there's a third behind it, and it's a faith family to do life together. These things become multiplied when we carry them out together. These benefits are multiplied. I need you when I fall to pick me up. I need you to help me fight for joy on days when I'm struggling to see joy. I need you so that our kingdom work can be multiplied in this city need you so that when my heart is cold to the gospel, you remind me once again of what God has done for us in Jesus. And then hopefully on the days that you need those, I can be the brother that you need. Right? That's what it means to be the church. Father, I pray that you would help Ecclesiastes 4 to be true in our lives, that we are convinced ourselves that it is better to be together than separate there's any way that envy or sloth or a refusal to take counsel from others is in us would you move us to repent of that and to seek your grace father would you produce genuine gratitude in our lives for what you've done for us and then move us to really be able to celebrate the blessings you give others whether it's marriage whether it's children whether it's a job whether it's a trip whatever it is help us to be convinced better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind help us to be convinced two are better than one three are even better than two and that we are best with Christ whether we need companions in the work whether we need companions for warmth for warfare withstanding or times of trouble I pray that we would find some of our closest ones here, brothers and sisters in Jesus, that we have intentionally committed together, not just to park in the same parking lot and to sit through the same lengthy sermons together, but, Father, to actually be the church in one another's lives. We will know your grace is at work, and we are moving toward health as a congregation when these things are true. I thank you that you were not reserved in our time of woe, but you came and took the woe upon yourself. You took the wrath. I pray that that would never grow old to us and our city is still in desperate need of hearing it. So, Father, I pray that your gospel would advance in us and through us for our good, for the good of our city, and for your glory above all. 
Use your spirit and your word. Use Ecclesiastes 4, not just in this moment, but in the moments when we go from this room. Hold it. Hold it in our heart. And as Gary often prays, Father, make our heart fertile soil to this truth so that we will live what we're called to live here in Ecclesiastes 4. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and 